Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Greetings, autumn revelers. It's time to make hay while the sun still shines, for winter is nigh. And when I say make the hay while the sun shines, of course I mean tune in for another Mint Condition episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. And who better to show us all the colours in their digital finery than Matthew Dickerson himself? Welcome, Matt. What's been on your mind this week? Jeez, I'm struggling to get those words out today. <laughs> Tough gig there, obviously. Yeah. Well, it's been interesting. I've had a few little concerts I've attended lately. The most recently was Ed Sheeran, or the most recent one was Ed Sheeran. Oh, fun. Absolutely fun. Yeah. And I remember back when I was a lot younger, you'd go along to a concert and you had a band who would have some instruments and they'd play them and sing some songs and you thought that was a pretty good night. And yeah, to I me, that sounds like a concert, right? <laughs> that's right, exactly okay. right. And I reckon it was Madonna who said, no, 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 that's not a concert. You need flashing lights or you need dancers or you need a stage show to go along with it. Yeah, U2 was doing this in the sort of mid to late 90s as well, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So you've got some of those bands that said it's just not good enough anymore to have a musician or musicians and a singer and you put that together and play music. We've got to do other stuff mm. to entertain the senses. And that seems to have gone to overdrive now. And so I've been to, in the last couple of months, Elton John and Billy Joel, who both had huge video screens and they were playing specific clips that I've never seen elsewhere. So I can only imagine that they were created just for the concert or the concert series that they might have been doing. A lot of work there to create basically a film clip that can play. Yeah. Again, I quite enjoy watching on the big screen the artists themselves performing and just watching them do what they do really well. Yeah. But it seems to have gone to this whole other level where we need something else to distract us. The Ed Sheeran concert, though, was another level again. Now, most of these big open-air stadiums, they put the artist down one end and then just blast the music out. Obviously, they have speakers strategically located around the stadium, but you're way at the other end there. You get the binoculars out and you can still only see a little ant down on the stage. <laughs> so what Ed Sheeran did was said, well, two things, I think. One, let's make it a better experience for everyone. Let's put the stage in the middle because normally you've got a back of the stage which you cut off some yeah, of the audience. Yeah, yeah. Let's put the stage in the middle. So that was great because everyone around the stadium could see it. But I also think there was a subtle little part there that said, now we can sell every ticket in the yeah. stadium. <laughs> every seat gets <laughs> occupied. But the technology... So, so did he move around to face the whole audience? or he, did He didn't need to because this is... And this is where I get to the technology part. The stage itself had a central part of the stage which stayed still around the outside of the circular stage was a moving platform. So Ed could just stand there if he wanted and he would move around and everyone would get to see the front of Ed. But then, this is where it got really cool, they had a circular screen that sat above Ed and that's where the whole video imagery of whatever had been produced, whatever their video production team had produced, that's where it played. So you had this circle of screens. Uh-huh. I was trying to look at and work out what it was. I was trying to work out what it was projection, but then I came to the conclusion it wasn't projection. It was a bunch of, it was an LED screen, if you like, a circular, huge circular LED screen that sat above Ed. And that was fascinating. And then, of course, 
around the outside of the stage, they had six big guitar picks. And when I say big, they were three or four metre tall guitar picks that had other video screens embedded right. into the guitar pick <laughs> yeah, okay. that you could show those bits of the screen. So anywhere in the whole stadium, you could see Ed as he moved around and on his circular platform. You could see the circular video clips and, of course, the six guitar picks. So it's just gone to this whole other level with That's the technology so there. Yeah. And it makes me wonder, what's the next thing? What, oh, what are we going to be watching in 20 years' time? I have no um, idea. For a, a, a performance, a performance in concert. In a big stadium. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And that's the thing. There were 86,000 people there. How the view was for all of those 86,000 people, I'm not sure. But they did everything they possibly could to give everyone in that stadium a really good view of it. But mm. again, the technology that was in there, this whole stage was custom built for the concert series. But then they've got to unpack that and then reassemble that each place they mm. go to. And I actually quite enjoy you stand there at the end of the concert. And when it's the last concert in a series, then these... Guys, that these ants just come out and they just do. They're like monkeys. The whole thing. They're just <laughs> climbing up over ropes and going all over the thing to. And they obviously know what they're doing very well. They'll go to one spot and they start removing that. And you look away for half an hour and you look back and you go, "Where did that stage go?" So wow. it's quite incredible. But yeah, the technology in all of that, that whole bespoke, custom-built stage just for Ed so he could have that whole circular view of everyone there. I just thought it was fantastic, and it probably is a bit harder to work for a band as opposed to Ed, who Ed basically does everything himself. Although mm. it surprised me, they did have a couple of songs where they actually did bring a band in and they had the band components, the drummers, the keyboards, etc., around the outside of the stage rather than on the stage, so it still left the stage all to Ed himself. But, of course, Ed just has his looping machine and his guitar and that's his own band, a one-man yeah, band. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, the technology in it was quite interesting, quite fascinating, and, of course, the music was very good as well. I, I think Ed does an incredible job. It's all part of the experience. Mm. Yeah. All right, now let's get the show on the road with our first story. IKEA is a name synonymous with sleek furniture designs, each of them with names that sound like a dose of indigestion. But IKEA is also very big on innovation, and the think tank at IKEA have been hard at work with your lungs on their mind. They've released an air quality monitor to give you a heads up when the air indoors, for one reason or another, gets a little nasty. Matt, do you think this will be something that everyone will have in their living rooms in about 10 years? I actually do. I think one of the things that we're seeing a lot of is home automation, lots of different devices out there trying to compete for your home automation dollar. When we start to fill up our pockets and then our wrists with technology, well, what's left? Well, the home, of course. Let's fill up the home with technology. Now, IKEA, obviously better known for doing their flat pack of various furniture, have decided that this is an area that they need to be in as well. They did bring out a standalone internal monitor, but it wasn't fantastic. It had a few little bits on there. It had the temperature, humidity, but we've kind of had those sort of devices for a long time, haven't we? A little mm. device you can stick in the lounge room and see what the temperature is or the humidity. What Needs this, to do something about it. Well, that's exactly right. That's It's all well and good to go, gee, it's hot now. Well, what do you do now? <laughs> but the newest one they've just come out with has got a couple of things that have been added on. So temperature, humidity, yep, that's done a given TVOC, the good old Total Volatile Organic Compounds display. Mm -hmm. Not sure what you do about those if it's got too many TVOCs. Get rid of the adolescents in the room. (laughs) (laughs) It might be the smell that's coming from them. (laughs) (laughs) Or a really important one, though, which is a serious health issue, as opposed to adolescents who may be a semi-serious health issue, (laughs) but is PM 2.5, Particulate Matter 2.5. The World Health Organization, who have said that exposure to PM 2.5 can cause 
a whole range of adverse health effects, respiratory disease, cardiovascular disease, even lung cancer they're putting down. Yeah, right. So the, this 2.5 is like a measurement of microns, isn't it, of, of particle size, isn't it? That's exactly right, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. got a diameter of 2.5 micrometres or less yeah. is classified as PM2.5. Yeah, so you're breathing those in and they can yeah cause serious harm for your lungs. That's right. And we get these from things like traffic, some cars, they produce them, industrial traffic can produce them, even dust in some areas where it's very dusty can get down to some of those particles that small. So that's all well and good. You look at that and you go, oh my gosh, we've got too many PM2.5s in our environment that we're breathing. That's bad. I'm going to get lung cancer tomorrow. I know, what do I do? (laughs) But this is where this device and more and more devices are going this way gets to the stage where they'll then communicate with other things in your house. So this is matter compatible, M-A-T-T-E-R compatible. And this is a lot of jockeying around at the moment from lots of different companies to be the VHS rather than the beta in yeah. terms of the, <laughs> we all remember that. That's right, in but. terms of where they're going to be able to communicate. Now an organization has put together a bunch of protocols around matter and they're saying, forget you owning this space, one company or another company Let's have everything compatible with matter. So all of you different companies out there, you're not jockeying in that space to see who's going to win the race. You all communicate with the matter protocol and then everything can talk together. So Mm. this is matter compatible. If you've got, say, for example, a matter compatible air purifier in your house somewhere, when the PM 2.5 gets too high, then you can have the air purifier turn on. When the temperature gets too high or too low, then you can have your air conditioner turn on if you've got a matter-compatible air conditioner. And I think that's where we're really headed to get all of these devices talking to each other. What companies like Apple or Amazon would love to have happen is that they became the default or the de facto protocol. But, gee, there's a lot of competition out there. It's pretty hard for any of those big companies to say that they're going to be the one. So maybe using matter. a lot of muscle there. It does, yeah, that's right. Maybe having matter in the middle of all of that for everyone to talk in that protocol would make a lot of sense. So it's an interesting space there. One thing I am a little bit concerned about, though, is that we all have seen the fun that people have had when they buy their IKEA flat pack furniture and panel A goes to panel B and panel C <laughs> screws. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are You've people got to assemble have, this thing. That's right. People have mm. made a profession out of that. <laughs> I'm just hoping they haven't actually come up with this concept of a, a air control monitor or an air monitor that you've got to then assemble yourself. So I can just picture this Just hope soldering those diagrams iron. are nice and clear. <laughs> that's right. Solder point A to point B. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's where it's headed. I'm sure it isn't, and I'm just joking about that. But again, IKEA, obviously they see that there is a space in this. And you don't want to uh, have a go at pronouncing any of those names then? Ah, <laughs> uh, look, I'd love to. So <laughs> but you they're, can't they're standalone twist your moment. tongue. Okay, here we go. Is the Vindrick Tning. Mm, I don't know how you pronounce T. Without accent, that was fantastic. That's right. The new sensor, though, is called the Vindsteiker. Beg your pardon? Yeah. So it, Excuse you. It's from Sweden, but I feel like I'm putting a German accent in there. <laughs> when you when you have some of those harsh consonants like that, like Steiker, sounds like it has to have a German Sounded accent. Bavarian to mine. Yeah, thank yeah, you yeah. for helping me out there. <laughs> addiction is a thing and in 2023 hopefully most of us are well aware of it by now but being aware of it and actually doing something about it are two different things of course so matt matt you're here now to introduce a brand new gadget that they call the arrow it's it's a smart box and its job is to help you detach from your devices and reconnect around with the world around you remember that folks 
like we did last millennium? Matt, what is this smart box all about? It takes a technology solution to solve a technology, technology problem, problem. <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> 91% of You've got too much technology in your life, so we're going to use technology to help you out. That should fix the problem, shouldn't it? 91% of people have their phone within arm's reach every day, all day. That's, I'm one of them. And that includes when you go to bed. You've got to have it on the bedside table, charging up, of course. That's where the charger is. terrible. Yeah. <laughs> 63% of people have actively sought a solution to limit their own usage of the phone. Now, I did think about just put it down somewhere mm. or turn it off, but they're not good enough, apparently. You've got to have something that does something a bit better. Now, the smart box is quite a clever concept. The smart box is just a box with some charges in it. So you can put your phone in there and charge it up. But, of course, it comes with an app. It's not a real technology product if it doesn't have an app with it. <laughs> when you put it in the smart box, you activate your app to say, I've put my phone in the smart box. I can no longer see it. I can't hear it. It's sitting in the smart box. That's it. It's not going to stop the phone from working. It's not going to block signal or anything fancy like that. It's just sitting in the box there, charging up. But you've made a conscious decision to put it away. Mm. That's it. And then, of course, what you do is when you register in the app, then you get a competition going with your kids or your friends and say, <laughs> let's gamify this and see if I can beat you today and have more with time. How much time I haven't used my phone or had it near me. That's exactly right. Wow. And okay. I think this is part of the whole psychology of it. If it's just, James, put your phone down for a bit. Oh, yeah, sure, I'll do that. If you actually then recorded that to look at how much time you put your phone down for the day, it wouldn't be much. But if there's a game involved, if there's competition involved, mm. then it might be, oh, I'll put it down and I might just set myself a target of 20 minutes or half an hour for the first few days. And then what? One of my kids is putting it down for an hour. Right, I better beat them. Oh, I'm breaking out into a sweat right now. <laughs> <laughs> so again, I thought it might have been really clever and have the box as a Faraday cage or something like that, but it was nothing like that. It's a simple concept, it's just a box as a charger. But again, when you gamify it with that app, I actually think it's got a future here. And I think people can see them doing things with this that maybe – they might have just used their phone when they didn't think about it. They're cooking something at dinner time. They listen to Tech Talk podcast. Mm. Or they might want to watch a video while they're doing something else, multitasking or, or time splicing and such. Yeah. So there's all those things where you probably don't even realise you're using your phone until you put it down and then you go, oh, oh, I don't need my phone while I'm cooking, do I? I could yeah. talk to my kids while I'm cooking something here. Maybe that's a concept. Anyway, it's an interesting concept. Of course... On Tech Talk, we'd encourage you to use more technology, so don't get it. No. No, it's impacting your life. Obviously, this is a great idea. You've probably heard about uh, some big white balloons flying over American airspace. Of course, big white f balloons flying over foreign airspace is one way to spy on your neighbours. It's certainly a great way to get paranoid Americans wound up like a tightly coiled spring. But big white balloons are a little bit obvious to, well, literally everybody. If you're going to spy on someone, I'm pretty sure that Chapter 1 of the Spy Handbook clearly directs you to try to be a little bit more sneaky than that. So if you're going to spy from above, it might be handy if you looked like, I don't know, Matt, I'm spitballing here, maybe if you looked like a bird. Oh, that'd be a bit sneaky, wouldn't it? Have you been employed by ASIO, have you? <laughs> oh, no, I just saw a Get Smart episode from the <laughs> 60s. Yeah. <laughs> well, he had his shoe phone, didn't he, all those yeah, years ago? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they had all those gadgets and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I seem to remember a, a pigeon or something that really looked like a dead pigeon. Um, it, yeah. It probably was. So when they try and get people to 
research things that are happening in nature and they want to put some hidden cameras in, for example, or fly a drone in to see what's happening with some flocks of birds, then the mm. birds look at each other and go, that doesn't look like one of our That's cousins. That's very there. birdie. That's yeah. right. And so they probably don't do what they would normally do. They don't undertake normal bird activities. But if you had a drone of some description that looked like a bird, in fact, let's go a step further than that, that was actually once upon a time a real live bird, but now it's not so live anymore. Oh, seriously? Using taxidermy. stuffed birds? That's right. So they're taking some <laughs> taxidermy birds, taking parts from those birds, and they're retrofitting them. I'm not sure if that's the right <laughs> word. <laughs> yes, that'll do me. That's a fantastic word. <laughs> With some technology. <laughs> but the really clever part about all this is they're making them fly like birds. Now, I have these images in my head before the Wright brothers discovered that maybe just air flying over a wing would be enough to give you enough lift. People tried to flap their wings or mm. flap their arms with bird-like oh, like things the Festival or whatever it is down in Melbourne, yeah. Perfect. Actually, that's coming up. It's early March, I think, mid-March. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have on. the Birdman thing the where bird you've got to jump rally. off the big platform into the Yarra River. That's right. And Ooh. no one flies very far with that because <laughs> flapping our wings as a human is not a great way to fly. No, I'd much. rather be in an aeroplane rather than try and flap my wings. But that was the first image I had. But researchers now, rather than 100 years ago, or maybe rather than at the Moomba Festival, then you've actually got incredible slow motion cameras where you can look at a bird and what they do with their wings and then you can emulate that with a drone. So they're taking mm. real life birds, putting things in there to make them flap like that, but then they're also being pretty clever about it so that when there's an updraft, whether some warm air moving up, for example, they're actually getting them to keep the wings out. This drone keeps the wings out like a bird would mm. rather than continuing to flap even though they don't need to flap. So again, a few birds hanging around together. Who's the new strange guy that keeps flapping his wings with the up? The guy up calls himself Phil. Yeah, he's <laughs> quiet. <laughs> That's right. So they're actually pretty clever in that. Now, the first thing they want to do with this, of course, is use it to look at what happens in various natural environments, keep investigating things, maybe protect species of birds that might be getting close to extinct. How do they breed? How do they migrate from one area to another? All those things. But, of course, the obvious thing after that is the big white balloon that might be so yesterday, next thing you know, you might have seen wonderful eagles flying around because mm. they're big. You probably put some big batteries in those and you've got these eagles flying around up high and you go, wow, look at that beautiful eagle. It looks so magnificent. And then you keep looking and going, gee, those eyes don't look <laughs> And you do well to spot it from the ground, I must admit. But it is a pretty good way to spy on something, isn't it, if yeah. you just saw birds flying around. Goodness me. That's where we're headed, James. For a while now, Air Force drones have been an integral feature of modern combat zones. A small target with a minimal heat signature, they make for a difficult target to defend against. But their firepower is somewhat limited. Nothing like the firepower that an F-16 fighter can muster. Now, minimising the human element from combat has been a target for the US military for some time. And while the autopilot function in aircraft is by now a very old hat sort of concept... It's only very recently that an F-16 has been able to engage in aerial combat using solely AI tech. Matt, this is both impressive and extremely worrisome for me. It is a bit scary, isn't it? And this isn't the idea that we've seen in various shows or movies or in real life where you've got someone sitting in a bunker in a nice air-conditioned room somewhere flying a drone somewhere else in some other part of the world. The joystick there, yeah. yeah. This is actually AI saying, being told, I want you to take off, go out there, 
have a bit of a dogfight with some other planes, and then come back and land. You make the decisions as you go. Now, the first thing I thought of was Isaac Asimov, because mm. in his science fiction oh, work, course, yeah. yeah, he came up with the three laws of robotics. It's funny, or it's quite funny that we use those a lot in the robotics we're designing today. So, again, this is science fiction, but he said a robot. Rule number one, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Rule two was a robot must obey the orders given to it by a human being except where those orders would conflict with law one. And number three is a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second laws. So basically, me telling a robot to go and shoot down another plane with a person inside seems to conflict with the three laws of robotics. But... I'm not sure the US military is that concerned about <laughs> Isaac Asimov because it does make a lot of sense because you've got these planes that are incredible in terms of what they can do. Mm. You stick a little bit of mushy human being inside and the first thing is that those planes have to be restricted to the G-forces the human can withstand. Now, I hadn't thought about that. No, that's yeah. an amazing thing, yeah. Of course, yeah, you can only take a turn that that a human can stand. About 10 Gs is, I think, the, what they're trained to be able to take. For that but, short period of time. But it only can be a, for a really short period of time, yeah. yeah. And these pilots are extremely fit athletes for a start and then train and they've got special suits on to try and keep blood flowing to their vital parts when they're doing these turns. So you take that out of the equation and the plane says, 10 Gs, <laughs> I spit on your 10 Gs. <laughs> so they can fly and, 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 and do more than they could do before. But there's also probably the human life cost when you put a person up in there. Mm. Uh, you, you obviously are risking human life when you do that. But imagine the future when you have one army, one air force, fighting against another air force with no humans involved. It's who's got the best technology can win those dogfights in the Just R2-D2 sitting in the back there, that's all. Yeah, (laughs) that's what it seems like, isn't it? Now, we would hope we never see a world war like we saw in the First World War and Second World War, but when we see some conflicts happening and some tensions increasing around the world, Mm. maybe it will happen. But imagine that. Imagine saying, right. Just having that upper hand, isn't it? It is. And I'm going to send my 50 jets out against you and you send your 50 jets out and we'll see who can obliterate the other one. And everyone sits back on the ground and has a couple of beers while they're watching the show. It'd be better than fireworks. Well, (laughs) in terms of of cost, I mean, um, so a plane gets shot down with a pilot. You still lose your, I don't know, was it a a $50 million aircraft or whatever? Um, But you also lose that pilot. I mean, we're talking in, you know, uh, completely pragmatically here, you've um, you've tr- spent so much effort training that pilot up. It takes yeah. a long time to, and a lot of money to, to train a pilot yeah. to lose a pilot as well. And you can probably go and build another plane, but the pilot's a bit harder to, to build another one, and, and mum and dad probably aren't that happy that's about it either. So all very sad, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So imagine that future where you've got these. Now, we've talked before about having commercial aircraft maybe down to one pilot. We're not talking about AI. We're not talking about zero pilots, but down to one pilot would be interesting. But this is getting down to zero pilots in an incredibly powerful and scary machine in Mm. the weaponry that it's got on there. But that's what's happening right at the moment. F-16s, the US Air Force has been having F-16s go up and perform dogfights against humans. Teaching them how to combat. And going quite well, actually, So (laughs) in terms of the combat. And and I assume, yeah, so they can take off and land all by themselves as well. That's just a given. Yep, that's right. And these have only been war games, so they're not shooting down other pilots for real. And we've all seen Top Gun, so we know that you're playing war games and you're locking on the other guy and there's a little red thing and some lights go off. Mm. I don't know what really happens in the cockpit, but that Mm. all sounds pretty good. And then you hit a button, so AI is doing all of that, all by its own some lonesome. Goodness me. Thank you.
Social media company Meta is set to ramp up the verification of its users on Facebook and Instagram. Matt, what are the implications of this? I'm actually feeling a little bit sad for Facebook. Meta, so let's just go back a step. Meta's the parent company. Yeah. Facebook and Instagram, for example, are owned by Meta. Meta. In a similar way that Google created its parent company, Alphabet, to own Google and other assets. Mm. So Meta itself, I'm, I'm just a little bit concerned about their financial state at the moment, and I am a little bit concerned. So they're this, going broke? Well, yeah, they're just struggling a little bit, you know. If we go back to 2015, Facebook itself generated $17.9 billion US dollars in ad revenue. So that right. seems reasonable. You could probably make billion? Yeah. You could probably make a profit on that, I'll I think. Make some lunches, yeah. Yeah. And then it seemed to go quite well from 2015 through to 2021. Average annual growth rate of 36.7%. Most businesses would be reasonably happy with that. Yeah, so by the time you got to 2021, $114.9 billion in ad revenue for Facebook alone. Just for ad revenue. Just ad revenue. So that's pretty good. And shareholders are pretty happy with that. Mark Zuckerberg could probably buy another yacht if he wanted to. Good luck to him. But then in 2022, there was a 1.1% decrease in their ad revenue. It dropped all the way down to $113.6 billion. Oh, my gosh. There'll be no Christmas this year. (laughs) That's right. Sorry, we're cancelling Christmas. So what they've done is they've said, what would Elon Musk do? And (laughs) what Elon Musk did was start to charge people on Twitter for the blue tick to say that you really are who you say you are. So Meta said, it's good enough for Elon. Let's do it ourselves. So they've now introduced the concept of verification by paying for it on Facebook and Instagram. So you can be the real Matt Dickerson and no imposters can be Matt Dickerson. Is that what you're saying? That's the idea. So yeah, right. I can have a little blue tick to verify me. You could gotcha. have done that in the past as well, but it was free. Uh, yeah, okay. But now if I want to be the real Matt Dickerson, I've got to pay for being the real Matt Dickerson. And I'm going to pay 20 bucks a month for that if I want the web version or I want to pay 25 bucks a month for the mobile version, which seems like a fair bit when Elon tried it with Twitter, it was only 8 bucks a month, so a little bit cheaper. So they've gone up. That's Australian dollars, the so 20 and $25. And they're actually trialling it in Australia and New Zealand first. Now, I don't know whether that's A, because Australians and New Zealanders are really great innovators and they'll jump onto new things, or B, that it's such a small market, if it doesn't work, it didn't really matter that much. <laughs> <laughs> We've been sacrificed. That's right. It might yeah, be the okay. kids, yeah. But it is a fascinating concept. It didn't work out so well for Twitter. They had a few issues where they seemed to have lots of fake verifications coming through because they were just taking the money for it. So I don't know it worked that well for Twitter. Will it work that well for Meta? I'm not convinced. And how important is it for people? Maybe if you're an Ed Sheeran, it might be really important to be mm. verified. But And he probably doesn't care about the 20 bucks a month. But for people that aren't Ed Sheeran and for people that not everyone's trying to be fake James Eddies and fake Matthew Dickersons, does it really matter that much? I'm yeah. not actually sure. Well, it's certainly for celebrities. I actually was only listening a couple of days ago to Bill Bailey talking about how he was a bit late getting onto Twitter. Yep. And uh, by the time he got on, he realised there were four other Bill Baileys <laughs> or at Bill Baileys or whatever, even various versions of it all claiming to be him. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, And I think for someone like a Bill Bailey, that's probably important. But for most people, and again, if they're trying to make up those billions of dollars of revenue they've lost in ad revenue, you've got to have a lot of people that are happy to have a blue tick beside their name and pay the 20 bucks a month or $25 a month for it. Mm. I'm not sure how it will go. And for people that have already got their blue ticks, they're free. So 
I don't know how long that'll continue on for. Will that be free for the next year and then they'll start charging for it? I'm not sure. The other thing to consider is that to be verified either with the old system or the new system, you've got to upload some pretty solid government ID to show that you really are who you say you are. Now, given the data analytics problem that Facebook has had in the past mm. where they've sold data or there have been data breaches around the world, people are a bit nervous about, oh, let's just upload yeah. all our secure ID <laughs> to really prove that we are who we say we are so someone can steal our identity if they get that information or if, in fact, Facebook decides to sell it off. Of course, which they've said they won't do it, which they've denied it so strongly it guarantees that they will do it. Is that the way it works? I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I wonder what Trump's social media uh, is charging for their verification. <laughs> we better go and have a look at that one. <laughs> While the current climate crisis seems to bear bad news on a regular basis these days, one of the perks is that clever people are coming up with some very creative solutions on an industrial level and the impact has the potential to be really marked. Take, for example, the production of steel, which has traditionally brought up a high volume of carbon dioxide emissions. Well, all that is set to change with a new way of doing things. Ladies and gentlemen, we bring you the H2 Green Steel from our friends in Sweden, Matt. We talk about Sweden a little bit, don't we? I yeah, think they seem to be you know, very clever doing new things. At innovating. Who would have thought? That's right. Now, it's interesting because I have discussions sometimes with people, sometimes frustrating discussions probably on both sides of the discussion, mm. about coal and coal being used in basically burning it to produce electricity. One third of the electricity we produce across the world still uses coal at this stage. Six billion tonnes of coal are used across the world. Now, I do say to people, we're obviously declining. We're reducing the amount of coal we're using. And if I was relying on digging up coal out of the ground for my wage or if my community was relying on that, I'd be a bit concerned. I'd have those conversations with people. And then the response I get is, aha, sure, I admit that maybe coal for coal-fired power stations is going down, but what about steel? You're going to need coal for steel, aren't you? And at the moment, the answer is yes. At the moment, we produce about 1.9 billion tonnes of steel across the world, and that uses 600 million tonnes of coal. So not quite mm. the 6 billion tonnes we use for power production, but still 600 million tonnes. Still significant. If you're a miner, you could probably generate a bit of income out of mining 600 million tonnes of coal. And if you look at the global greenhouse gas emissions from that, 7%. Of all global oh, wow. greenhouse gas yeah, emissions come from steel. We don't think about it much. We think about no. transport. We think about planes and ships and cars and cars and cars. So we think about those things. We don't think that much about steel. We think about power production. But this is quite fascinating. Now, when you start to look at how you can do it differently, our good friend hydrogen comes into the mix. Uh, we have talked about hydrogen a little bit. Yeah. But hydrogen is definitely going to be the solution for... The super fuel. The super fuel. That's exactly right. And the thing that I love about the super fuel is we've got a bit of water on this planet. So if you can just work out a good renewable power way to get that water and take the hydrogen out of that water, which we do have that concept, mm. then that's pretty exciting. And that's exactly what happens with H2 Green Steel. This is a particular company over in Sweden, as you mentioned, that is going to be producing green steel by the year 2025 by using hydrogen as part of the process. Now, of course, they will go through that process and produce the hydrogen in a green way. They'll have renewable energy contracts, they've already said this, so that 
because again, as soon as you talk about hydrogen, people say, oh yeah, but you're burning coal to produce that hydrogen, so you're not gaining anything. And if you did that, you're right, but you probably wouldn't be that smart if you're doing that. Yeah, look, that's a really dodgy gotcha, isn't it? <laughs> it is a dodgy gotcha. <laughs> I'm going to steal that, that's good. <laughs> so one of the things that they'll do is they'll produce green hydrogen, they'll then use that in the process, and obviously you need a fair bit of heat to produce steel, and you've you've got, uh, basically you're melting steel, so you want a bit of heat there. That used to be with a coal-fired blast furnace, but they're doing that now with hydrogen. This particular company, one particular company, has said by the year 2030, they'll be producing 5 million tonnes of steel each year via this green steel method. And you go, wow, that's pretty impressive. But then when you think about the 1.9 billion tonnes that we used last year, 5 million tonnes isn't that significant, Mm. but that's just one company in the UK, for example. The government has said that they're going to give... 600 million pounds to their two largest steelmakers to convert them over to some form of green steel production. So this will be the first plant, H2 green steel will be the first plant in the world to produce green steel, but that's the first one. Yeah, just the first. That's right. There are lots of steel producers across the world and all of those, well, I think it'll have to get to the stage where all of those, but a lot of those will start to get to that stage where they're producing green steel. But pretty fascinating. It's something you don't think about a lot. You see some steel being used in a building. You don't think, Mm. gee, I wonder how much coal was used to produce that steel because it's not there. It's not obvious there. Mm. But green steel, I think people will be starting to get to the stage when they're doing building projects. They'll say, I need to get my net zero. I need green steel in this project. Now, here's a story that's got my attention. Sleep patterns in the age of information have been shot to pieces. We are on all the time. So when we try to switch off and go to sleep, our hyperactive brains don't settle like they used to these days. Sleep patterns are being being interrupted because brains have been reprogrammed by our devices. Matt, it's time for some clever tech to step in once again and save the day. It sounds like the smart box, doesn't it? The tech's the problem. We're going to solve it with tech. That's right. <laughs> and that's exactly right. People do watch TV in bed. They play on their phone in oh, bed. They play on their tablet much. in bed. Yeah. And, of course, then they try to go to sleep and they're still thinking about all those things that are stimulating their brain. But you've also had, like, the, the blue light um, flashing at you and, and mm. whatnot. So that interrupts your circadian rhythms. These have been all linked to, um, to problems such as uh, diabetes and, I understand, in, uh, increased cancer rates and things like that. All sorts of things. Heart disease, diabetes, mental health problems, high blood pressure. All yeah. of these things can be linked to a lack of sleep, which then is linked back to technology. 71% of people in the UK don't get the recommended amount of sleep and 15% are getting less than five hours. Mm. So it is a problem. And even just in lost productivity, in the UK last year, they said that lack of sleep and then some of those health issues that uh, were as a result of that lack of sleep, $40 billion a year, they estimated in lost productivity. There's a fair few extrapolations going on there, I'm sure, a fair few estimations, but this is the problem. But what we're seeing now is this whole sleep industry Evolving, it was worth 15 billion last year, but expected to be worth 67 billion dollars by the year 2030. And some of the solutions are actually quite simple. There are apps available for a whole range of things. You can put things on your body. We've got watches now that can track the amount of sleep, and again, just to see how much sleep you got throughout the night. And so you can start to adjust what you're doing. But then you can tie that back to things like I'm not getting enough sleep. I need an app that can help me. And so you've got apps that will get ready for it, read you, 
bedtime stories. <laughs> so <laughs> what we used to do for our kids and what our yeah. parents did to us was that bedtime story and we felt a bit sleepy and we went off to sleep. That was actually something that they were well advanced. They knew that that would be a great way of sleeping. And apparently the stories themselves and the way people read them and some of the pauses in them mm. gets us into that mode of sleep. And so that works really well. You've got other devices that might just play you some soothing music, for example. I'm a big one for the white noise or the yeah. um, the sound of rain. Yeah, Right, yep. Yeah, yeah. And the other part is... When you've got some natural sounds around you, so living in a regional area as we do, we don't hear a lot of other noise, traffic noise, that type of thing. But I really notice it when I go and stay in a big city, just the noise of the city, mm. not even just traffic noise, it's just the noise of the city. Yeah. And if I say to someone that lives there, they go, what are you talking about? I, I, I can't hear anything there. And for me, it's different. Again, you stay there for a few days and you get used to it. But that's where I think that white noise that you're talking about yeah. can block out those other sounds. People coming from big smoke to regional areas probably see the same when they go, oh, those birds, I can hear those little birds or I can yeah. hear a dog barking when you mightn't be able to hear that in the city. So it is quite interesting, but I think this whole area is something that we just haven't explored that far. But technology is going to be the real thing. And not that I'm going to give share advice, but if you had a company that you saw was in that sleep game, it might be worth keeping a bit of an eye on that because I think this whole sleep game is going to develop it's dramatically. A bit of an industry. A huge industry, huge industry based on just some of that data and some of those things that are happening there. So again, just keep an eye on it and see where it's going, but there is technology out there. If you've got some of these sleep problems, there is technology out there to help you. Last year, one of the many companies that I've passed my own important private information to suffered a data breach. They weren't alone. There are a number of these stories in 2022, and the unnerving feeling that it leaves customers with is a major issue of our modern day. My personal data may be used by someone else producing fake documents, credit cards, passports and such at any stage in the unforeseeable future. There is a burden on all companies with large databases of customer data to protect it. And so a Privacy Act reform has been produced to hold these businesses to account. What are the details on this, Matt? It's actually really interesting that we often talk about the fact that technology is sometimes a little way or a long way ahead of our laws. And that applies mm. in a whole range of different situations. This is a classic one of those. When we had the Optus and Medibank hacks back in 2022, the the Privacy Act was quickly changed. So if there was a breach, companies in the past could have been fined $2 million. For a company the size of Optus, for example, $2 yeah, million, you'd no say, well, I'm not going to spend the money on making sure that we're very tightly locked down. If it's going to cost $2 million, that's cheaper than mm. the cost of actually going and protecting ourselves. They changed that to be $50 million. So suddenly you might go, oh, maybe maybe better have a little bit of a look at this again and see if we're doing it right. These latest changes, 116 different proposals are being put forward as a draft at the moment and they're open for submissions till the end of March. But some of the big changes here are related to the individual and what you can do. So if, for example, you saw a breach that impacted you, someone stole your identity or someone tried to take a bank loan in your name, whatever it might be, they're opening up potentially, again, this is all draft, they're opening up where you might be able to sue the company as an individual. Now, right. you get enough of those individuals, oh, so wow. a solicitor yeah. comes along and says, let's put a class action together. That's what you do in these cases. And so then $50 million would be an absolute drop in the ocean. Yeah. You start to get lots of people impacted. What's the cost 
to you as an individual having your data stolen to the point where your identity is stolen, mm. gee, I don't know, I, I think it would be a huge amount because it can have ramifications for months and years just going and getting a home loan to buy your first home yeah. and the bank says, sorry, we looked at your track record. It's horrific. Well, you've got well, default you, loans all over the place. Yeah, credit cards. Um, <laughs> all yeah, sorts of things. Yeah. So the inconvenience to your life, what is that worth? I mean, that could be worth a lot. So you suddenly start to get thousands of people impacted and they all want to sue for a million dollars. You know, that starts to get to be a big number. So this is quite fascinating we see around the world some of the privacy acts that are in place are much more advanced than they are in Australia at the moment. And obviously, you tend to look around the world to see what's happening. But in places like Singapore, New Zealand even, some European countries have got much more advanced privacy laws that makes the individual company much more responsible. I think that's where we're going here. There'll be more responsibility on those individual companies. So again, if you're a cyber security expert in Australia, there might be a lot of business coming your way. Absolutely. And while we're on the subject of cybersecurity, charity scammers are now using AI-generated art to further their underhanded cause. Matt, what do we need to be wary of now? I've actually been having a lot of fun with Dali too, not to do charity scams. Let me just (laughs) emphasise that for the moment. But that's the one where you can create your own artwork. Yeah, that's right. And you'll type in something, you, you want a picture of a car sitting on a cliff, about to fall over the cliff with a blue sky in the background. And it draws four versions for you of that. And you go, oh, I like that one there. I'll just use that one. Thanks very much. Mm. It's really good in what it does. Sometimes when you put people in it, it doesn't do people perfectly, but it's still not too bad. It seems to struggle with people the most, but other more abstract things it does a really good job with. So I've been having fun with that. I've been using it for social media posts and just using it just to play with in general, and I'm I'm quite fascinated by it. But, of course... Our good friends, the scammers, we've talked about them before. They just can't help themselves. So the latest thing they've been doing is generating some art that's really pulling at your heartstrings. So when we've had, for example, an earthquake in Turkey and Syria, they've been generating images purporting to be people that are in these earthquakes in tragic situations. So, for example, emergency personnel pulling a baby out Mm. of some rubble. And you could do that. You could literally go in and say, give me an emergency person pulling a baby out of rubble and you'd be five seconds later, there's a bit of artwork for you. So they've been using these pictures, making it look like they're from these real situations and then putting up links to say, please donate, help these poor people out, look at this situation. Now, when you saw that, when you saw some fireman pulling a baby out of rubble, you'd be thinking, oh, that poor baby, parents are probably deceased in that. Oh, why wouldn't you donate some money? But of course, they're not real and some of these photos aren't real. And one got picked up by the fact that, as I said before, sometimes it doesn't draw people that well. One of the firemen carrying a baby over had two shoulder, noses. Well, almost had six fingers. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, and they oh, were okay. from Tasmania. Apologies to every Tasmanian, but but it oh, was no. it was one of those things that you looked at it and it just looked like a, an old picture. And then you looked again. You went, you know, that hey. just looks a bit funny. There was a thumb and five fingers there, and you went, mm, that's not quite right. Oh. And it might have been possible. There are people out there with six fingers. It might have been possible that that was a fireman with six fingers. But a bit more investigation, suddenly you work out that it's a scam. So just what won't they sink to to try and get money out of it? So we get all these clever Be tools. Be on your toes, folks. Be on your toes, that's right. Again, where can you go to donate some of this money? That's the problem. There are charities, legitimate charities, legitimate causes around the world that I'm sure are missing out on money now because people are so concerned about 
being scammed, they don't want to go and donate their money to a scammer. And I think what we, we can do now is we know that, well, we're getting used to at least, someone, um, something pops up on your feed or uh, by email and it says, oh, here, be wary about this or donate money to this or whatever. Then that's your cue if you're keen not to click on any links there, <laughs> but to go through an, another source to find that charity to find that organisation that needs your details, to do whatever, yeah. you've got to go out and start again from scratch and just do the searching yourself. And I'd go through some of those trusted, we've got some great Australian organisations yeah. that are very trusted, that we know them. And again, exactly as you said, go and find the information independently yeah. or go and find someone physically to actually give some of that money to rather than going and doing it. It's convenient to do it online, I get that. But I just hate don't the idea. Don't click on the link. Yeah, don't click skins. on the link. That's right. Good advice. And as the sun sets on another episode, it's time to fold up your picnic blankets, stow the leftover camembert into the esky, knock off the warm dregs in your glass and make tracks before the ants take over. Thanks for another Sterling Tech Talk, Matt. Well, I'm just about at my limit. I've got to go and stick my phone in my smart box there so I can't <laughs> listen to any more Tech Talk. It's going to be all gone shortly. I'm not letting mine go for a while yet. And I tell you, after today's episode, I'm going to get out my smart box to defend me from my overbearing impulses. It's just got to happen. And while I'm at it, I might just download that Sleepio app and see if I can't reclaim a decent slice of real estate in slumberland. That's it for me this week, folks. I'm your host, James Eddy. And as always, it's a delight to bring you each and every episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Have a great week, folks, and keep your eyes peeled for suspicious-looking birds. We'll catch you in another week's time.